If you'd asked me five years ago that I was doing stuff I was doing, I'd be like, whoa, what the hell is this? For me, it was always a dream of mine to work at like a tech company doing like cool shit. And Lucid Motors like is, is that company. Welcome to episode eight of the Idea Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Cho. So today I have a special episode because I'm going to try and do something a bit different with a small subset of the feed. Some of you will know that my experience as a Stanford student has been one of the most formative periods of my life. And in reflecting on that, one wild thing is that despite the fact that I used to see so many of my classmates and friends on a regular basis at Stanford, kind of now living in the Midwest, being almost five years from having graduated, and also having my own professional and personal interests, I'm just not as in tune with what a lot of those very interesting kind of ex-Stanford friends and peers are doing these days. You'll have seen in the title of this episode that it's demarcated with the abbreviations W-A-Y-N? And that stands for Where Are You Now? The idea with these releases is that they'll be only a minority of the episodes, but essentially they'll be conversations with people that I find interesting, specifically that were either Stanford peers or friends uh, or other Stanford alumni that I think I can learn from their experiences, their career choices, and aspirations. My guest in this episode is Christian Tay, and it was fitting for me to have Christian on as the first guest for this type of recording because my conviction for this type of episode, or at least trying it, uh, grew when I was in the Bay Area earlier this year and was staying over at his place. Christian studied electrical engineering at Stanford, and we initially had met our freshman year at Stanford through some early church visitations. And throughout our time at Stanford, we played pickup basketball and had a handful of mutual friends as well. For the past two years, Christian has been a battery algorithms engineer at Lucid Motors. And in this chat, I asked Christian about both his Stanford experience, uh, but also his career thinking and future goals. So with that context, please enjoy my conversation with Christian Tay. I was going to say it's fitting that you're the first kind of guinea pig to to try this style of podcasting out with because um, it was when I was at your place last month that I was thinking, man, there's a lot of people from Stanford that maybe I see them like on on social media, but I used to have regular interactions with them on campus and it's like yeah. five years later now and I feel like I just don't have any idea like what they've been up to. Um, so I appreciate you kind of entertaining this uh, this opportunity. It's hopefully going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, it's it's also really cool how you like had the same you know interest in podcasting, and I agree with you. I think after like COVID, you know, people and after college, people kind of go their own separate ways. But yeah. a lot of stories I think to be told and heard about uh, people's journey throughout that experience. A hundred percent. And I hope this podcast maybe gives you an extra bit of uh, push to consider launching your own podcast because I know you had that in the back of your mind and your your setup is pretty oh yeah pretty dope for sure yeah you'll know when it happens and um yeah I'm also learning from this experience as well so it'll be fun so maybe as a starting point like give your current background right now you've got the um the fitting like lightning bolt in the background your your background okay. is like as an electrical engineer of sorts right so maybe just give right. the the quick overview of like what your current situation is right now 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. So yeah, you see the lightning bolt in the background. Uh, I've always been interested in just engineering and how technology can be used to solve problems. I think one big part of today's society is just the electricity delivery, the grid, um, a lot of issues with just how we get our electricity and how clean it is. I mean, you know this already, but I studied electrical engineering at Stanford. So I've always been interested in just building things. Uh, I liked physics in high school a lot. So right now I've kind of taken that degree and applying it to my job right now, which is battery engineer at Lucid Motors. So, you know, an EV has a battery, obviously. The battery has to be properly maintained. You have to measure how much energy is in the battery. So what I do is make sure the battery doesn't explode, but also making sure that the user knows how much energy is remaining in um, the vehicle, because that's a big part of the user experience. Range anxiety is a big thing. But yeah, I think overall, like I have that interest. I'm also really passionate about policy. Also actively considering a career in law as well. But I think to me, part of me is just kind of always interested and curious about learning more about the topics around the grid and also building whatever it is that can solve that problem. And remind me, how long has it been now that you've been at Lucid Motors for? Yeah, I'm coming up on two years now. So I joined basically, yeah, 2021 October. Yeah, it's crazy how quickly time flies, right? It's just like, I feel like just like that, I'm already two years in. I've done some yeah. cool projects. And yeah, hopefully like there's a lot more that can happen in the next few years. But I'm learning a lot, which is a good thing. And even before that, I think I was trying to decide whether I want to go to the tech, go into policy, whatever it is. I am very happy with my decision to go back to tech just because building things is cool. I get to work on a really cool piece of technology. And honestly, just driving the vehicle around is just like so fun. So yeah, all, yeah. Those, all those good benefits kind of lined up there. And, and the background on Lucid Motors and the company itself. So they are, mm -hmm. do they have a handful of cars that they produce and manage? Or is it just one specific car that they're building? We have like, you know, a sedan, electric sedan. And we have like different variants of the sedan. So the Model 3, Model X, Model Y. Yep. Um, we have like the Lucid Air, which is our version of the sedan. And then we basically have like different performance variants of it. So we'll have like a high performance vehicle. We have like a more longer range vehicle. And eventually, actually, our plan is to expand into different categories of vehicles. So like we're developing an SUV that'll be out, hopefully, fingers crossed, in a year. And then we are also developing some other projects along the way too. So okay. we have a long way to go, but it's cool yeah. kind of seeing that progression of starting from like a base model and seeing how we can kind of improve at each different vehicle variant. Yeah. One of the things that I hope that these styles of, of podcasts will help me better understand is even just the uh, career trajectory or in terms of academic interests of like some of the people who I've hung out with a lot or like played ball at Stanford with is yeah, like, yeah. I don't really understand a lot of their, their backstory per se, but in terms of, so you graduated the same year that I did 2019, right. But then yep. you stuck around for the master's program as well. The co-term um, yeah, yeah. was like early on the electrical engineering interest. Was that pretty certain? Like when you came in your freshman year at Stanford? Yeah, that's a good question. I think for sure, I don't think I envisioned myself studying double E coming in as a freshman. I think I actually had the vision of going to, into chemi. I always knew I was passionate about energy and I knew I wanted to be in that space. But the question of like what like major that would help me unlock that potential was still unclear to me. So I think what really changed my mind or at least made my decision was I took this class at Stanford called E40M. It's called Intro to Making. Um, and basically what it is, is like, a very kind of bare bones hardware class where you like build like cool projects using like Arduino, which is like a microcontroller. You build really cool projects. And I think I saw 
how you can like use the physics that you learned in like high school, but also like combine that with like more of the engineering to actually build something with your hands. And I really enjoyed that part actually. So I think after I took that class, I was like, okay, let me just take another class that kind of goes in that direction. And yeah, before I knew it, like sophomore year, I think spring quarter, I declared double E. But for sure, like that freshman year, I don't think it was very clear. Like I took CS, I took some physics. I don't think I ever ended up taking a chem E class. I think maybe people told me that'd be really tough. So somehow it's like, okay, maybe not chem E, but like maybe like Mechie, double E, CS. I, those were all kind of in the mix, but for sure, engineering was like, yeah, like that was, I knew I was gonna do engineering. It was just a matter of like, which one would be the best fit for me. Yeah. When, when people ask me what major they think would be the hardest, at least in, in, from my perspective, the two that come to mind are Kemi and, and doubly when you were going <laughs> through like the, the Stanford, uh, like the program was was it natural for you just given your like analytical skill set and your background or would, was it, were there some challenges with the, the major? Oh yeah. I mean, for sure there are challenges, bro. I mean, I think I'm lucky because I, I went to a high school that really prepared me for like academic rigor, I think. And already like I had like this math, or not mathematical intuition, but I just had like a joy of like solving physics problems in high school. And hmm. I think like, at the college level, it's definitely a different level up for sure. And your peers are also really smart as well. So you're always trying to, you know, figure out like, oh yeah, like where do I rank, whatever, or like, am I going to make it? That kind of thing. But at the end of the day, I think what Stanford does a really good job of is like accepting people that are just chill. Like, I don't, I don't think it's like, I don't think like we're like, like MIT or like Caltech, you know, I think people that go to the, to our school, like they have different interests. Like you and I, you know, we play basketball, whatever we enjoy other things outside class. It's not just about class. Um, yep. And I've made a lot of good friends through Double E, actually. And still today, I keep in contact with a lot of them. But yeah, I think uh, for sure, like it, it's uh, it was it was a journey and it wasn't easy. But if anything, I just feel like, yeah, it, it just helped me kind of learn more about solving problems and making sure I'm like organized and everything. I think the the other point of intrigue about these types of of podcasts, I feel like, are there's a lot of interest in the the pathing of how somebody gets into a school like Stanford. When you were referencing yeah. the, the high school that you went to and it like preparing you well in terms of uh, majoring in electrical engineering and the types of experiences that you'd go on to have. What was it a technical school? Like, could you give a little background on the the high school experience and the lead up to to Stanford? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, it, it was a technical program. It was it was STEM focused. I mean, basically, we had a lot of like science and tech requirements. So, I think everyone was required to take some level of computer science. I mean, people were very very motivated at that school. Like APs, we even had like something called post AP classes. So. Before AI was big, we had like AI classes at Stanford, or not Stanford, but at TJ, which is the school I went to. But yeah, it was a double-edged sword. Like, I don't think I had a normal high school experience and I recognize that. But looking back, I'd be a very different person if I didn't go, I think. Like, I think those years were very formative. And for sure, it, it pushed me, it challenged me. Like, I think I remember high school, like junior year, senior year, it was such a grind. Like, I was I was playing baseball, I was doing extracurriculars, and classes were just so tough. Like, hmm. And on top of everything, I lived like 40 minutes away from school. So wow. it's not like I could just, you know, drive. I had to like take a bus to my base school, which is like five minutes away. And then there'd be another bus that took me from that base school to that magnet school. Did you attend the the magnet school, like the, the base school and the magnet school? You only attended the magnet school. The base school is just only like the a school. local school. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, the local school is just like a way to basically get to the magnet school. It's like a, some kind of bus system. But what that meant was I had to wake up really early, basically. And then I, I basically I get back home very late as well. Like you include like all the other stuff after school. Um, was um was high school, the high school experience for you more difficult than your Stanford experience, would you say? I want to say that actually some parts of high school were harder than than college. I I personally think that freshman year and sophomore year were like, okay, you know, like I feel like it wasn't until like junior year at Stanford where I got really pushed to hmm. a level that I hadn't seen in high school. But I think the very fact that like high school, I was just kind of grinding a lot. I think it really opened my eyes to the different experiences that people have coming to college. But I don't think I, I didn't really have a social life in high school. Right. But yeah, at the same time, it did prepare me academically for sure in college, which I am grateful for at the end of the day. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Yeah. When I, I mean, when I yeah. compare the differences from my perspective, like in high school, it was nonstop because like school started yeah. pretty early of, it was, I think like seven 30 ish timeframe, maybe a little bit later than that. And then like you have the block schedule of just class after class, uh, basically until three o'clock. And then if you end up doing a sport, you have practice until, I don't know, five 30 or six. And then it's like, get home, eat dinner, and then just like grind homework and, and, uh, prep for classes. So that's what it felt like Monday through yeah. Friday for me. And then maybe on the weekends you had like a little bit of free time, but yeah, I guess, I guess if you're a double E major at Stanford, then it's also pretty much a grind. Whereas if you took the route I took and did like a social science, like econ, it's, it is much more manageable <laughs> in terms of course. No, I mean, I know econ had some hard classes as well. And I, I mean, honestly, I, I think the nice thing about college between like high school and college, the reason why I thought it was at least better is because like it's less structured um, mm -hmm. in high school. It's very regimented. As you said, like, yeah, you have like one place to go to during school, block to block to block, and then maybe some after school activity. But in college, at least for me, it was a lot less structured. Like I had class maybe at like one or something before then I'd have more time to like work out or work on a piece set. I mean, it, like weekends to me were like more free, I guess. Like I remember in high school, weekends were not free. Like I was busy doing something, something like studying or some, yeah, some other activity, but no, I feel you, man. Like, and I, I think a lot of people like in our class for sure went through the same thing. I think all of us to some degree in high school had to like grind like that. Right. So yeah, I don't think we're like unique in that regard. Did you, uh, did you go to the admin weekend for Stanford before you yeah. like committed? Okay. Yeah, yeah, Cause yeah, it was, yeah. uh, that, that experience for me was, uh, a bit intimidating because I don't think, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but I only applied to two colleges. I applied to my state no school, way. University of Illinois, and I applied to Stanford. Dude, and, I had no idea. Okay. Yeah. And when I got to Stanford, it was like wild because people were like, yeah, I'm considering like Harvard and MIT and Stanford. And I'm not really sure which one, to, which one to pick. And for me, I was just like locked into, locked into Stanford. And sure. it was just like, um, wow, there are some people, especially on the coast, like East Coast, West Coast, that are just like super academically competitive, you know? Okay. And was, th was that your experience when you were going through the college application process? Did you have a handful oh, dude, of like- No, dude, it was exactly obviously. I like, I just shot everywhere, you know? Like trying to, <laughs> I mean, one, one will hit, you know? Like, yeah. I think I applied to a bunch of schools. I think Ivy's obviously, UVA was like a good school that I was also considering. Yeah, no, I mean, college apps were just so- Brutal, man. Like when I look back at it, like it was busy because I was like writing essays and yeah, trying to put everything together. But each school had like their own like, you know, supplemental essay. Right. Yeah. Um, so I remember like winter break. It wasn't a normal holiday. I think like every day, even Christmas, I was like kind of locked in my room, just like writing out stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Well, you also have your 
is one of your younger brothers he's still at stanford right now right he he actually graduated he graduated last year so i imagine that you and maybe your family gets the question often of like hey my my kid wants to go uh to a school like stanford like what what yeah. what should they do in terms of uh preparing themselves like assuming that they have the academics down for sure for yeah. for for you when you reflect on your uh college application in yeah. terms of what differentiators that that you think were key talk yeah. me through that a little bit i think my my story uh, like what they say is like i had a clear passion for like technology which was like to me like energy climate change, clean energy specifically. I had some leadership positions in high school. And basically the story that I kind of wove was basically combining that engineering, that love for you know humanity and for solving problems and taking that experience and combining that with my leadership to one day do something big. And I felt like Stanford provided that opportunity for me. I think what I said was like Stanford because their engineering program, top notch and everything, I'd be able to kind of combine that at the time, I was like interested in like entrepreneurship as well. So I was tying some of that in a little bit. But yeah, I think my background was basically kind of doing that. I did like science fair as well, some other tech clubs. And I also founded a, a club called Humanitarian Aid for North Korea. So I was like president there. And at the time, I was also really interested in like policy issues as well. So I got the chance to actually kind of develop partnerships with other nonprofits in the region to basically help people in need. So yeah, I think some combination of those was kind of the quote unquote story. Besides, obviously, like I, you know, I played an instrument, I played baseball, had all the other academic stuff. But yeah, I think just as a whole, I try to paint myself in a picture of like an engineer leader who wants to really make an impact on the world, which I think just sounds so cliche nowadays. Like, I don't know how, I don't even know if that would work, honestly, with like today's <laughs> application rates and everything. But yeah, yeah, like looking back, that's, that's what I remember, how I structured everything. Yeah, it always, even now in the business world, it amazes me how important being able to tell a cohesive story is. Yeah. Uh, because like even some of the highly technical people, let's say in finance that I had interacted with, some of them, like their ideas were great, but they they couldn't communicate them to the ultimate decision makers. And yeah. that oftentimes was a huge differentiator. And I imagine sure. being in electrical engineering and uh you know working with a lot of engineers that that's yeah. like often a skill set that is i guess like less refined with most of those types of, of folks for sure dude yeah i think the stereotype is is true to some degree even like at my work i think it's technical information and relaying that up to like a level that people can understand is is like such an important skill especially within engineering actually i, I think it's very very underrated but yeah i i, I agree with you I'm, I'm there with you for sure <laughs> so what was what was the uh the mindset when you first got to Stanford in terms of like, okay, you knew you had some underlying interests, mm -hmm. but in terms of, I guess, plugging into the community and uh, like I was part of freshman year, like a handful of different like business or finance or investing related uh, organizations. But then over time, yeah. like I, I kind of honed in on a couple that I thought I would actually have more opportunity to make an impact in. For for you, were you involved with a handful of like professional or electrical engineering related uh, opportunities at Stanford? Yeah, yeah, I was. I think freshman year, I just tried a bunch of different things. I don't think I really like committed freshman year. Like one example is I I tried solar car team for like a few months. For whatever reason, I felt like I wasn't, it wasn't really that interesting to me, which is very ironic because I had like a huge interest in like energy and stuff, but I think what it really was, was that I felt like I didn't have 
the hands-on information or like experience to really contribute. So I felt like when I went to these meetings, I wasn't really contributing to the actual project itself. And I think if I made more of an effort to, I, I could have. Hmm. But at that time, I was also, you know, probably more focused on the social aspect of things, just meeting new people and yeah, trying to develop relationships and everything. I think it wasn't until sophomore year where I really basically found like a community outside like my dorm friends and everything. And yeah, that was uh, ACES. So it's the Asia Pacific Entrepreneurship Society. Think of it as just like a entrepreneurship group that likes to basically bring in like guest speakers from industry, talk about their entrepreneurship experiences. There's a social aspect as well. We also have like a program called Bootcamp where basically in teams of like four or five people, you come up with like a business plan for an idea and you pitch it in front of a panel of judges hmm. at the end of like the quarter. So that's kind of what got me into like plug into that community. And it's crazy because like, I don't think basically the reason why I, I kind of joined is because like my friend, Nick, shout out Nick Benavides. Uh, he's like one of my good friends today, but he was basically the first, I, th I think freshman year he joined boot camp, and then kind of, he like, like kind of pushed me a little, Hey, like you should consider applying. I was like, yeah, that like, I'm down to like meet new people and also kind of learn more about like entrepreneurship and everything. So I kind of just did it. And then by junior year, I was like the social chair uh, organizing events with my my good friend, wow. Brandon. But yeah, I think a lot of like cool people I've met through that program. And yeah, really grateful for those experiences. So would you uh, say yeah, the uh, because Stanford, the, the startup culture is obviously very, very strong. And I feel like if you're at all technical, whether it's like CS or just like standard engineering, like at some point in your Stanford journey, you're going to get pulled into the entrepreneurial ecosystem and at least consider starting a startup. Was yeah. that something that you had interest in at all, like coming into Stanford or during your time at Stanford? I think I always had some like dream of it. I don't think I was as serious about it as my other friends. I think to me, like I always, I tell myself like, if there's a good idea or something, then, you know, I'll try to make something happen. But I think what it really is, is actually like, I don't know if I have, I don't know if I enjoy like gambling, you know, like that, that risk. Um, yeah. I am, I would say I am definitely more risk averse, but it is exciting to kind of be part of that community and see what people have been up to. And yeah, maybe one day, like it'd be cool to kind of put something together. I've always like thought of myself as kind of, doing my own thing, whatever that is. It could be a business, it could be some other nonprofit or some other venture. But yeah, I, I think the idea of like entrepreneurship excited me. And I think that's one reason why I tried to join ACES was to learn more about it. And yeah, for sure. I think at first when I got to Stanford, it was a little intimidating because people were like talking about all these like different ideas they had. They may start something in high school, some business or app, but I wasn't one of those people, but I was curious though. And I think that's kind of what, what took me down that, that ACES route sophomore year. And remind me when you came in, like for your freshman and sophomore year, which dorms, uh, which dorms were you in? I was in Donner. Yeah. Okay. I was in Robley. I was yeah, yeah, on Robley. like the okay. C, C wing of, of Robley, but Donner, is that in Stern or Wilbur? It's in Stern. Okay. Yeah. Okay. East campus. <laughs> Cause how, do you even remember how we ended up interacting? Was it through some pickup basketball game? Dude, you know, I think it might've been that. Like, because you live in Kimball, right? So that, that I think that was the first point of contact. Yeah, there. sophomore year I was in Kimball. Yeah, I also remember like reaching out to you about like church or something. Like maybe. Oh yeah, yeah, some, yeah. Like, I I don't know. Like I remember like maybe you gave me a ride or you told me about some yeah yeah some Sunday event or something. But yeah, it, it was I don't feel like that or basketball for sure because I know we were hooping it up in the. Either like the, those Kimball courts or like, yeah, and like Ariaga or something. Yeah, yeah. And that's <laughs> that's the one thing that I regret about uh, Stanford to some degree is 
the only way that I got like exposure to people was either through pickle ba- basketball, through church, or through like econ, econ related like classes and some clubs that I was a part of. But yeah. I realized like I I probably over indexed on academics and just studying, getting good grades, and probably didn't spend enough time like meeting interesting people with very different backgrounds because I th- I think like at least from my perspective, when you're at Stanford, you don't realize the density of intellectual thought that's actually there until yeah. like maybe you leave that that ecosystem. So that's that's what I'm hoping to recover partially uh, with, you know, part of the podcast as well. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And um, I think there's always time to socialize too. I mean, you know, if you had the grind, you had the grind. Like, I don't think that we're, I mean, I don't even know we're just like friendships, you know, they don't have to happen, always happen in college. Even like post-college, sure. I've met some cool people. Even though I will say it, it definitely is harder. There's like that barrier, but yeah, I, I mean, Stanford was an amazing like place to meet people of so many different backgrounds and super glad that it got to, yeah, you know, be part of that. Was there anything that in your first few years at Stanford that either surprised you just in terms of like expectations that you had coming in versus reality? You know, I think I had such high expectations just going to <laughs> Stanford that like, honestly, I don't, I don't know, like. Yeah, they're definitely met. That's for sure. I don't know if it like exceeded because they're, they're just so high to begin with. But yeah, I, I think just going back to like the type of people that you see at Stanford, it's like it's really it's just cool to see people smart, but also just have other passions as well. Like I, I remember like in my freshman dorm, there was like a, a D1 athlete, like a wrestler, like a super big dude, super jacked buff. But he was also interested in like I think he was like, he also like played piano or something or like he was he, like, he'd have like a literature book, you know, re- would read in the lounge. Like yeah. it's like stuff like that where it's like, it's so cool to see that kind of stuff. And whatever thing it, it is, it's like, I think people are passionate about something. Um, they have some interest in something. And I think it's, it's, it's more than just like the school. Cause like, you know, people go out, have fun. Um, they try to build something outside class. And it's really that, that spirit of innovation. I think that just ties everything together. But yeah, I, I think like, honestly, like there were, there weren't really any big surprises, I'd say, um, at least yeah. from what I can think of right now. <laughs> I, when I think about even now about just uh, social communities and how they develop their own identities, like I feel like Stanford has a very strong one in terms of like the startup influence, in terms of being, I guess, having a positive sum type of mentality. Like people were surprisingly nice. I, I've heard stories, especially like on the pre-med side of being, people being yeah. a little bit more cutthroat and all that. But for the most part, especially when I talk to people on the, the East Coast and their experiences at, uh, you know, like the Ivy League schools, it does seem like Stanford in terms of having this like underlying fabric of camaraderie and, and community and also being like both very in- intellectually impressive but then having like a wide diversity of interests um that's something that i think is like very evident throughout yeah and i agree and like you always have like people that are a little bit quirky or have their their own thing going on but i think at the end of the day it's just like it's it's about the aggregate you know like diversity within the student body that makes stanford what it is essentially so what what about the like non I guess, strictly academic experiences that you had, whether it was internships or like research stuff, did, were you involved with uh, with a handful of other things related to-, to Yeah, campus? yeah. I mean, I, I mean, honestly, one internship experience that comes to my mind was like my summer of 2017 when I actually went to China. I lived in China, Shanghai for a few months and that was through Stanford. So super cool experience. I was taking Mandarin at that time, uh, two years of it actually. And 
I, I wanted to exp- I just wanted to go to China and kind of practice. Um, yeah. Though I was definitely humbled by how fast everyone speaks there and how hard it actually is in the in the native tongue. Yeah. Um, but honestly, just a really cool life experience. I think just living, yeah, in a foreign country because I've done that also in Florence as well through Stanford. But China was the first time I was actually in that country, almost alone. Yeah, I wasn't actually in Shanghai. I was actually like an hour outside Shanghai in a, okay. in a town or a city called Changzhou. And I was pretty much the only one there. I felt isolated a little bit in the first few weeks, but I learned to kind of learn about, you know, the culture kind of branch out a little bit. Essentially, like I was the only American, I think maybe in that, in that city, I mean, not in that city, but like not many people spoke English at all. And yeah, it was, it was really cool kind of seeing like, just almost being like a local almost, right? Like I was working with other people, like living in like a, a company subsidized apartment. So pretty much everyone in the apartment was working at that company. Hmm. Uh, I remember we had like a basketball court outside. So like the way that I would be people was actually just through basketball. And they, nice. they would know that like I was from America, like I wasn't from China. So like they'd always yeah. ask me about America and like some NBA team or some shit like that. But yeah, <laughs> it, it was cool. Like a really cool opportunity to kind of do that kind of thing. So how yeah. did your how did your ball skills stack up against uh, the Chinese natives? Dude, I will say these people don't play defense, bro. Like I, <laughs> I don't know what it is. Like people are very offensively skilled. I think like they, they know they, I think what they do is that like, they model their game off of like a certain NBA player. So like Kobe is really popular in China, yeah. LeBron, like all the big names, like Steph Curry, like, especially, I don't know what it is, but like whenever we play like threes or fours or yeah, like fives, even it's like, it's just like, a, like no one is actually playing defense. It's like, yeah. or like they are obviously like, you know, they'll like stand in front of you, but like, you can kind of blow past them or something and it, it is what it is. And I, and I wonder if like, maybe that's because of the NBA and like the way that they play nowadays. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. That um, would, that would make a lot but of yeah, sense. I did try to work on my skills. So nice. So when you were in China, were you doing work? It was work for a Chinese company that you, it, was it through the Stanford global studies program yeah. or did you find yeah, it? Independently? That's it. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. It was a global engineering program and I was working at a solar company called Trina solar. It was, I mean, honestly, I don't think the job was actually like anything legit. Like I, I did some research on a new type of like cell chemistry for the solar cells that they were developing at that time. But I did get a little glimpse into like the Chinese working culture because um, mm. it was a big company. Like it's almost like a, I think it's like one of the biggest solar manufacturers in the world actually by just output, at least at that time. So mm. every day, basically I kind of like wake up at like maybe seven or so, take a bus to the the campus. So there'd be like a bunch of buildings on campus. Think about like just cubicles, you know, maybe like corporate America in the 80s, 90s, kind of like like floors. Pretty much people arrive at like nine exactly. And then people leave at like five exactly. So okay. it was like very standard, very like nine to five. People would take like maybe an hour for lunch. I think something interesting that I found was um, people actually like sleep, you know, at their desks during lunchtime. So they'll like spend maybe like 30 minutes like eating lunch in the cafeteria. Yeah. And then they'll come back to the desk. They'll have like a little pillow, right? And then they'll just like kind of slump for like yeah. 30 minutes. And as soon as it hits like one, they'll just wake up and like back to it. So wow. I don't I don't know if we have that in America actually, but that's something I noticed in in China. So So yeah. I did I think I told you this. I did two summers in Japan. And one of the summers was at uh econ like think tank. And I noticed the same thing. I, I think in Japan japan the working culture is uh it's much more challenged i think for like just the the average salary man is what they call them yeah and 
you, I would see people sleeping like for hours sometimes, but they would stay in the office like from eight o'clock in the morning and then they'd stay throughout the night. And the policy was basically like, you don't leave until the boss leaves. You know, oh, and sometimes yeah. the boss was there really late for and sure. sometimes they weren't even really doing anything productive, but the yeah. FaceTime was necessary. So it's pretty wild to see the differences in working culture eh, compared to the US at least. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, it's like those things that are just like, I think good kind of things to learn about, I think as like outside America too, how, how does like uh, the working culture compare between different countries? Cause I think that actually tells a lot about the country itself. Like I think personally in the Bay, the culture is like very grind heavy for sure. And it makes sense because all of the innovation that happens here is a result of hard work of people. But mm -hmm. my understanding is like, if you go to like a place like South Carolina or I don't know, anywhere like maybe not the Bay or like not some metropolitan area in the United States, yeah. life is like a lot more relaxed people mm -hmm. kind of settle down and it's like kind of yeah cool to kind of see those like differences i guess across different countries as well yeah. yeah and what was what was the interest in studying chinese and then eventually working out there for a summer was it just like a cultural interest or did that have overlap with like your engineering yeah. interest as well it's a good question i think for sure basically I, I i took spanish in high school i hated it so much that i didn't take ap so i had to take a language in college so that was a requirement coming in and mm -hmm. I knew for sure I did not want to take Spanish. Um, so <laughs> I was like, okay, what's next? Like, I, I think my decision to take Mandarin was like kind of a utility and also kind of my interest in just the culture and like the characters specifically. Like growing up, I actually had an interest in like Korean history. And mm. um, because a lot of like the written language in Korean at like, you know, way back was derived from Chinese characters, I actually had like a little interest in like doing calligraphy and everything. And mm. for me to take like Mandarin, was all like almost like a full circle moment. So, like I could actually learn about these characters and how to speak the language of of China. So yeah, it, it was it was cool. Like it's it's ironic because I think a lot of people think that Chinese is really difficult, and it definitely is. But the one thing about it that I found great was that the grammar is really easy. Like there's mm -hmm. no conjugation. The only thing about hard the only hard thing about Chinese is really like the the speaking, like the tones and the writing, which right yeah is it, pretty tough for sure. But I think the reason why I had such a hard time with like Spanish, just like the memorization of the conjugation and everything. I think in 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 Mandarin, it's like it's very like leeway. There's like no like past tense or like yeah, like different endings to verbs and everything. Interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. I I also had like a bit of PTSD from my Spanish my Spanish days, just in terms of frustration with the language. But I I personally think that a lot of the way that they teach language in school is just kind of messed up because. I think that most of the time, like when you're a kid, you just absorb the language and like mimic other people and try to reproduce it. But in an academic setting, it's so like grammar heavy, I feel like of like, yeah. here are the list of vocabulary words, learn them. Here are the rules to conjugation and learn them and develop some sort of intuition. But you're doing yeah. like very little speaking on a day to day basis. At least that yeah. was my experience in high school, which I, I thought yeah. was like a terrible structure. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's tough. I, I, I think even like, I remember trying to even just watch like telenovelas just to like, you know, absorb the information in high school. But <laughs> yeah, I don't think I had like a natural aptitude for Spanish. I'll just be honest. <laughs> when you were, uh, when you were young, did you spend any time in Korea at all? I did for a little bit. I remember like when I was like maybe four or like six, like I go to Korea, like pretty much every summer in fifth grade, between fifth grade and sixth grade, I spent an entire summer in Korea actually. And hmm. it was cool. Cause I actually got to like, be a student there like I actually went to like the elementary school locally and 
it was only because like my my grandparents were like connected with the school officials in that district or something so I was kind of like an almost like an exchange student um and I think at that time I didn't know much well I think I definitely knew more Korean at that time than now but like for sure it was tough communicating I remember my mom was helping me with homework on the on the days and everything but yeah, <laughs> yeah. going to, back to Korea is always a you know a good time I wish I could go back more but just like yeah it's it's tough with like work and like you know finding time to do it but definitely want to visit there sometime soon I don't know about you but that's just how I feel yeah yeah I, ho- I hope that I have the opportunity to do that uh when I was at Stanford I expected that I'd overlap more or meet more like Korean Americans or like Korean international students and I was surprised that it was like so much more I feel like Chinese or Chinese American dominant yeah. like, I didn't feel like yeah, the yeah, Korean sure. presence was, was that strong or maybe I would just looking in the wrong places no no I think you're right I mean dude honestly like when I look at my my friends at like these other schools I think especially in the east coast i think just the korean community is like more strong i think hmm. for whatever reason i think stanford is just not you know really that big maybe it's because like the bay is like more been more chinese historically and indian but yeah it, it, it's uh I, i'd say like right now i don't really have many korean friends you know it's like yeah but in high school i did i had a lot of them because there's so many right i, yeah. I just think like in stanford you know <laughs> not many of us to really uh yeah well <laughs> some somehow we found uh we found each other naturally so <laughs> i know i know and that's yeah and i'm yeah that's that's amazing <laughs> so when you were i guess getting into your junior senior year were you planning to do the co-term program and and stick around for an extra year was that the original intent yeah i think it was in the back of my head i don't think i fully committed to it though till like maybe junior summer basically what ended up happening was I had like a, like a moment of kind of reflection my junior year. I, um, I was taking all these classes within a specific area of double E called semiconductors and analog circuits. And um, I mentioned before that I really liked building things with my hands. I liked learning about the the theory of how these devices work. I think I got a little burnt out after my junior year. And the thing was with my background at that time, the jobs that I would be working in would be like basically working in like a fat facility. So like think about just like like working in labs, running experiments, basically like making sure like a circuit would be probably designed. And I don't think I found much interest in that. And like I did an internship later on actually that year that confirmed my 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 hypothesis. But at that hmm. time I had like a little bit of a desire to think about, okay, do I really want to commit to this? So my plan was basically use the co-term as an opportunity to do something else. Like still do double E, but, you know, do something else that, you know, is more aligned with what you're interested in yeah. um, and see what happens. And that's what, yeah, that's basically what ended up happening. What I, I, I applied for the co-chair my senior year, this time applying for uh, a different subsection of double E. So hmm. uh, it was called like optimization and uh, signal processing. So it's like more of like the mathy software side. Um, and that to me had like a lot more potential in terms of like career prospects also, like, cool, just cool stuff to learn about in generally with the stuff I want to do related to energy. So, yeah, it was definitely, in hindsight, like, a good move to make because I don't think I'd enjoy, you know, working, like, an actual hardware job of, like, you know, like, working on chip-level design or working on circuit-level design. Like, I think it was cool to learn about in school, but, like, in actual practice, I just didn't, you know, see myself doing that. Yeah, that makes sense. And is it is it common for electrical engineering students to try and do some sort of research under a professor while you're there? Yeah. If you want to do PhD for sure, that's something that you have to do. I think it was a good mix between like, 
doing some engineering work like SolarCar or SSI, the Stanford Space Initiative, or like doing research or something. I actually did do research under professor for two years. So my freshman year and sophomore year, Professor James Harris, he was like a big solar solar cell expert um, hmm. within the EE department that also overlapped material science. So Okay. Yeah. Like I was really interested in just like solar panels, like solar cell chemistry. So I, I did like a summer program my freshman year under him and then kind of continued that work my sophomore year. Um, but yeah, you know, that, that was definitely a grind, but it was fun learning about that. And I, I think also I realized that after doing that, I didn't really want to do a PhD because also a PhD was something that I was considering as well, at least my freshman year. Oh, really? Yeah. I think, I think a lot of different options were open. Like it was more about just, you know, eliminating which ones that didn't make sense. So yeah, it was a, it was a cool thing to do, but yeah. Shout out to those PhD people working in that lab right now, or, you know, grinding out their theses. It's like, yeah. I, I know it's, I know it's not easy I, for sure. When, when I've seen like my mentors at the the lab group and everything, um, yeah. it's, it's very, it's, it's very much a grind. Isn't that a kind of a crazy thing to think about the fact that if you were doing a PhD track that you could still be like on campus doing, uh, doing research work or something like that. I know. It's, yeah, it's yeah, wild it's to me. Like you have to it be is. seriously committed to, to follow a path like that. Yeah. Committed to the grind for sure. It's uh, yeah. respectable. And, um, yeah, I, I think like it's, I mean, they, they have passion for it, which is great. So, you know, yeah. it's uh, it's what fuels them. And so after the, the co-term then you did. I guess what was the the type of program? It was like an internship or externship program, or it was a fellowship. Was that right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, story about this. So I did a co term between 2019 and 2020. Uh, COVID hit. Obviously, that was a, <laughs> that was a big year for all of us. At that time, I was also like kind of like at a crossroads. I would say because five years of my life up to that point, I was doing tech. You know, like engineering tech, but I also had this interest in like climate like climate policy, climate change. And mm. a big part of that is is policy. So for whatever reason, I was thinking, okay, what if I actually did this program called the Schneider Fellowship, which allows you to basically take a year to work at like an NGO and work on policy related problems. And mm. one of the Schneider Fellowships was at the NRDC, uh, the Natural Resources Defense Council. They're basically a nonprofit that tries to basically like, you know, push for clean energy, climate policy. They do a lot of work at like the local level, state level, federal level. If you think like court cases that involve like the EPA or, you know, Chevron, ExxonMobil, they're the guys that are trying to defend the the environment, essentially. Yep. Really what I think kind of transpired this was like when I took this law school class my senior year, because that was like my first experience to the grid policy and just the law generally. And actually, the professor for that class was a Schneider Fellow, uh, maybe like 10, 15 wow. years ago. So I learned about that that opportunity there. And it was kind of in the back of my head, uh, I guess, like during COVID, when I was actually co-terming and I had to like think about, OK, what I want to do next. I basically had to make the decision, OK, should I do it now or do I just push it off later? And it made sense to me to do it that time just because, you know, one year out of graduation, like, you know, you can learn as much as you can and you can always go back to tech if you wanted to. Yeah. But there's this one opportunity where you can really try to learn as much as you can about this space, which you don't know much about. So I applied and I, I got it. And then basically my the fall of 2020, which is after my graduation of co-term, I uh, moved back to D.C. and started my fellowship, which was the year. So I don't really know what distinguishes like an internship and a fellowship besides maybe like the, the length of time, but yeah. essentially like I was considered like a full-time employee just under like a 
a contract that was lasting a year essentially so interesting there was a set end date and i knew at that time that like after that i could evaluate if i wanted to like stay in policy or go back to tech so really that year was just about kind of exploring something new and yeah we can talk more about it but it was it was a super super good experience for me Gotcha. And so then you were on the East Coast for a year and then you decided to come back out to the West Coast after that. And that's yep. when you started the whole Lucid Motors uh, exactly. gig as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. During the during the fellowship, I think probably towards the like the last half of it, I came to the realization that policy was cool. Like it's something that I want to work on in the future, but mm-hmm. my best value is engineering. And I also felt like when you're young, it's cool to work on like an actual product, you know, something that like you can point to later on, like when you're older or something. So I was looking at EVs, EV companies at that time, and like just other companies in tech that relate to energy, the grid. And yeah, I I think also like another part of it was just just going back to California because all my friends were there, Yeah, uh, the social aspect as well. So yeah, it was was a big decision to make, but it was also clear to me like what I need to do, if that makes sense. Yeah. And in terms of the EV gig right now, of a lot of the work that you're doing is related to optimizing the battery, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I guess in terms of like the working dynamics of what what it looks like on a day-to-day basis and what types of problems you're thinking through I, without getting overly technical and <laughs> and not making yeah, any yeah. sense to me, like what's the, what's the best way that you try to explain it to uh, novices and, and amateurs like myself? Yeah, yeah. So day-to-day, I mean, I'd say I divide it up into like two categories. So one is called like let's just call it development and one is like like testing okay <laughs> really really simple but i guess it, it does come down to that so development what that really means is like you have some kind of a feature so like some kind of improvement to an existing software so you're actively trying to talk with other people maybe talk with like a project manager talk with other engineers and come up with a solution to a problem that you encountered. So mm-hmm. the problem could be something from like the customer fleet. So a customer that like has a car, drives a car, it sees like the battery power is like, or the battery energy remaining is dropping really fast. And that's not supposed to happen. Mm. So we get that request from someone and we like, okay, why did this happen? Let's look back at the logs and what can we do to fix it? Uh, so that's like one activity. Um, another one is features or things that like, we don't get from the customer, but we want to push out. So this is just like things like uh, maybe like a new uh, feature that allows you to see um, the energy remaining when you input something on the map. So like if you put a destination on the map, I want to go to like Trader Joe's, which is like 30 minutes away. What would be my energy once I make that drive out there? So you can better plan ahead for that route kind of planning. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like then like we go back to the drawing board and figure out, okay, what do we do there? Like, how can we use the information that we have? How can we basically build this software in a way that like won't break the system? So yeah, that's like the development aspect. And the second part I said was like testing. So a lot of it is also just like making sure that once you make that change, everything looks good and that it doesn't like blow up the system. So we have like these testing engineers that handle that, but hmm. as like a developer, you have to kind of coordinate with them what kind of tests you want to do and like how to make sure the edge cases particularly are all satisfied so that when the software change does make it out into the fleet, uh, we minimize the risk of just, you know, complaints and other issues coming up. Um, gotcha. Yeah. So, I mean, an engineer, it's, it's kind of like very focused on like issues like that. I think another, maybe another part is also 
like system level stuff as well. Like sometimes if another person wants to like develop a product that intertwines with your work, you're mm-hmm. kind of pulled into those meetings. So you kind of have to like give feedback and like your expertise on that as well. Yeah. So that happens a little bit because a car has like so many different parts to it. Uh, it's not just like one isolated part that we work on. It's like also integrated with, you know, the battery, the actual motor itself, like the system display. There's like all of the, these like different softwares that are running concurrently to make sure everything works together. In terms of what you have seen, I guess just being an electrical engineer over the mm. course of, let's say, since Center Stanford time, and then like the work that you're doing on right now, the EV batteries themselves and how they've become, I guess, more powerful or optimized. Like yep. I, I assume if you look on a 20 or 10 year time horizon, right? There's been like massive improvements, but in yep. terms of like the, the key bottlenecks at this point, do they tend to be like raw materials related? Is there still like a lot of opportunity for further development in terms of optimizing the batteries? Uh, yeah, the- no, hundred percent. I think um, th- there's always going to be pushing the innovation of like the performance and the specs of the battery. So the biggest characteristics of battery that we care about as a driver or just anyone that uses batteries is, is really two things. One is just the amount of energy it can hold. Like really mm-hmm. it's the energy to density ratio because you can always build a bigger battery, right? But if you can really pack as much energy into like a small unit, you get the most bang for your buck. So how mm-hmm. can we optimize that? The second thing is the age, like how it degrades over time. So, you know, you have like a little battery, right? in your phone thing. Maybe you notice this, but like over time, after a year or so, it, you're charging a lot more often, right? It's right. like the capacity of the battery is degrading over time. It doesn't hold as much energy as it could have when it first was pushed out. The reason why this happens is just because over time, there's like some electrochemical processes that make the transfer of energy really inefficient as you charge and discharge. Hmm. Um, and so that's like a, you know, a pretty key bottleneck because a lot of people of these cars, if they're going to own it for like more than like five, 10 years, they have to deal with the fact that these batteries will lose their capacity over time. It's just a fact of life. Yeah. So how can we minimize that degradation? And it can either come down to like the way the customer uses the vehicle or the actual tech or materials of the battery themselves. So in terms of innovation, I think people are, are doing a lot of interesting work like solid state batteries, which solve those problems. So it's like, I, I don't exactly know how it works, but the idea is like you can pretty much, you know, use a battery for a lot of cycles without much degradation and you can store a lot more energy. But commercializing it is a, is a different, you know, story. Like you can always yeah. come up with like something in the lab, but it'll take some time. But I mean, I think the thing with uh, innovation is like it will always push towards uh, the cutting edge. And I think that's where we're going to be headed. Like we always have been like ranges of EVs have been increasing. And likewise, I think just the, the chemistry of the battery will allow yeah us to kind of achieve those, those specs that we want in the future. Makes sense. One of the things that I had learned pretty quickly after graduating from Stanford and studying economics there was that in terms of the skill set that I developed and it translating to finance, like 90% plus of the work that I I did in finance, like I had learned on the job for the most part. Oh, and really? There, okay. There wasn't that much translation. Like there yeah. were some maybe high level concepts that I had learned while an econ major. But even now, the, you know, I had moved from 
finance to a startup environment. And at the startup, I was doing mostly operations related stuff, nothing hard finance related. And now I'm working for sort of like an insurance like company, but I'm also doing operations. So it's like in terms of the skill sets that I acquired during my, my econ major studies and it translating into what I'm doing right now, there's been very little, even though from an intellectual curiosity perspective, it's been a rewarding thing to have done with what you're doing at lucid motors is a lot of the stuff that you are working on are you drawing on a, a lot of what you learned from stanford or was most of the learning done on the job as well yeah i think for sure there's like a, a minimum level of knowledge that you need to do the job that i do it's like you need to know how a battery works you need, maybe you need to know some like some math basically like what we're trying to optimize for but yeah. i will say a lot of it is also like, you know, learning on the job as well. Like I, I, the stuff that we do, like, like the details of like, uh, how we implement this in code or like how we like run these cell tests. I'd not learned that in school <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Like, but, but the, like the, the knowledge of like how we characterize a battery or like what does capacity mean or state of charge or like, what is one way that we could reduce the power so that we don't degrade the battery? Like, these are mm-hmm. things we learn in class. So it's 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 a mixture of both. I think that's interesting because like, yeah, I feel like in engineering, you do need like the education or some level of technical knowledge to like basically do the job. And that could be either in school or like outside school, it doesn't matter. But I do think also like the next like details of like specific system level stuff, it's like, that's pretty much comes from the company itself or like, you know, your peers at the job that teach you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's kind of cool because I, I I think I learned I've learned a lot the last few years, like stuff that I didn't think I'd be learning almost. But it is at least validating to see that the stuff I learned in college does have some application. And yeah, you know that doubly was like late hours in the lab, like was wasn't for nothing, right? So <laughs> yeah. yeah. So if you if you were let's say to relive your Stanford experience, but you were restricted from like not majoring in let's say anything like computer science or electrical engineering or chemi like anything like hard technical do okay. you know what you what majors come to mind as as what you'd consider oh man that's a good question i'd say like i've always been interested in like maybe like a film study class that'd be cool mm. <laughs> i don't know about majoring because like you know you still gotta get a job and stuff but I, <laughs> yeah. I enjoy i enjoy good like films like i enjoy like you know good stories and, did you take uh, any film related classes I never did. Dude, that's that's one thing like double e just yeah. got me uh got me so busy with other stuff but that's one thing i would have done maybe over the years i've been more interested in just like government and policy so maybe i don't know maybe like political science or something i think it's cool the engineering 103 the public speaking class you i i saw that you had done you took the class and then you like TA'd for it right yeah what yeah, was yeah. that was that just uh kind of a for fun side thing or was it like you you took the class you enjoyed it and you decided why not why not make be more involved yeah no i i knew that i needed to work on my public speaking skills like my junior year so i was yeah. like i i heard about this class they said it was like super fun and it also has some utility so i was like you know what? Like I'm so loaded up on other classes right now. I got to have some like, like fun class. So I, I took that class my junior winter quarter and yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. Like I thought it was a super well-taught class. I was asked to TA, I think after, after the course, and I took like a class to kind of train for how to teach it. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's anything special, honestly. Like the one thing that they probably looked for in me was like the fact that like, I try to give good feedback when evaluating other people's speeches. So yeah. 
I don't consider myself like a, a super good public speaker. Like I think I'm very thoughtful in how I like organize my presentations and how I structure material. But yeah, in terms of like delivery, I don't think I'm like the best. <laughs> but I think uh, it, it was it was a really cool experience for me because I felt like as I was teaching, I was also learning myself as well. Just like giving feedback and seeing like areas of improvement. I also was like, oh, actually, you know, the way that I talk about certain things, I can also improve on that as well. So, you know, it was cool. Got to meet some cool people. And yeah, it was, uh, I, I, it didn't pay well, but like I just did it because it was cool. So <laughs> yeah, I I had, I took the class as well. I both nice. like hated and loved it at the same time in the sense yeah, yeah, that. Yeah. I, I'm not a fan of public speaking, obviously, but I felt like I needed to challenge myself in some way. And it's very humbling if you have never done anything public speaking related, even to get right. up in front of a, a classroom and try and speak cohesively, right? I know, and dude. Yeah, yeah. Wait, wait, when did you take the class? This probably would have been, I want to say junior year. It was either spring or winter time. Dang. Okay. Maybe we overlapped. I, I don't think we were in the same section because otherwise I would have remembered, but okay. Yeah. 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 And I, when I think about the handful of classes that I feel like every college should like put their students through, it's like, that definitely is, is one type of class, right? Like a public, yeah. I've heard it said that uh public speaking is, is the number one fear of most people. And they often like rank it above death, which is like oh pretty, pretty wild, but it makes sense. Yeah, that's crazy. The people that I've, I've interacted with are just like terrified of it. And yeah. In terms of it translating to the working environment, like that's a that's a huge asset to have. And I I've seen it, you know, even though I'm not a good public speaker per se, I've I've seen it be valuable just in terms of getting more comfortable with uh, being willing to engage in those those types of uh, interactions. Agreed. You know, Agreed. yeah, I I don't know about you, but when I first entered the class, I I for sure had a fear. Like I was comfortable speaking in front of large audiences, but the, the great thing about that class was that it exposes you. It puts you like kind of in the spotlight and it just forces you to learn to deal with yeah. it. And I think now I'm more comfortable. So like, that's like such a good skill to have, I think just the, yep. yeah, going forward that you said. So yeah, I think that's a, uh, yeah, for sure. Like a good move that we made to take that, to take it. For sure. And even in terms of podcasting, like it, it serves a similar I think uh skill set in terms of you're able to listen to yourself and the uhs and ums and the likes and all the filler words that you use and how ideas yeah. don't, you know, uh flow from one to the next. Like I think it's right. uh, another tool like that, but yeah. I feel like the public experience, the public speaking experience uh at Stanford has helped me become like marginally better at at that. So, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of wild we're coming up on five years, which is pretty, pretty crazy uh, since 2019 of like where you would have projected yourself to be. If you even had any expectations at the time you had graduated of like what your career path would look like. And then also yeah. in terms of the things on your mind of like four or five years from now, it would be interesting to see myself in uh, these handful of positions. Could you say, say a little bit about that? Yeah. Five years ago. Let's see. So five years ago was 20. Yeah. 2018. Um, I was a rising senior. I think honestly, if you'd asked me five years ago that I was doing stuff I was doing, I'd be like, whoa, like what the, what the hell is this? So like, I think for me, it was always a dream of mine to work at like a tech company doing like cool, cool shit. And yeah, to me, uh, Lucid Motors like is, is that company. Like it's like really cool product cool innovation um get, get to get my hands dirty on like a, a few engineering problems um i think five years from now where i want to be is is different because as i am approaching two years of lucid i'm kind of considering what i want to do next with my time um 
So one key component is, you know, making an entire new switch to law because I've always been interested in policy um, and the climate space and that intersection with also mm -hmm. engineering. So there's a chance that maybe like I've graduated law school and I am working in a law firm that deals with like energy regulatory issues, which is something that I've been kind of really interested in. Another path that I see is, you know, maybe doing a smaller startup and still working in like the EV or electricity space. But yeah, it'd be cool to kind of see where that happens. Maybe along the way, like maybe do new area, new friends, like who knows? I think it's it's pretty exciting because a lot of things could happen in one year. But yeah, that's kind of like, yeah, the way that I've been thinking about it. That's awesome. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's an exciting time to develop a professional career because I feel like now more than any time before, your ability to pivot across very different types of industries is much more open than it once was. Whereas, especially in a career track like mine, if you start in finance, the yeah. probability that you'll stick around in some financial related job for the next five to 10 years is very high. But I found it I wouldn't say easy to switch to like a startup or an insurance company. I wouldn't say it was easy, but it was not nearly as uh, as challenging as I I, I would have thought. Um, and it's kind of like a same situation for me, which is exciting in that over the next four to five years, there's still like a very wide diverse of opportunities that I could see myself potentially slotting into. And, yeah. uh, and, and having those options available is like a, a huge privilege, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. What's on the radar for you? Five years. What do you think? That, I don't know, uh, man. I mean, we've talked about you. this before, but I yeah. I do hope to spend a couple years like working abroad, right? If I can make oh, that. That's work. right. Yeah, yeah. And the big the big challenge there is in terms of the work obligations that I have right now. Can I do them at the same level of quality or or better while also doing remote? And a lot of my job right now is in a hybrid dynamic. So I do feel like that transition could be made with the uh, exception that I'd probably be working some odd hours. But I'm like you, I did the study abroad, you know, situation as well. And I had spent time in, in Chile for, it was like three to four months and then did yeah. two internships in Japan. And yeah. I remember those, when I reflect on my Stanford experience, those probably surface to the top is being most impactful uh, sure. because even like when you said how the experience in China maybe at first was a bit like isolating I feel like you learn a lot about yourself in yeah. those those situations because it's like a completely novel environment and you have to like figure I know yeah yourself out um yeah. so I'm I'm excited to have like hopefully more of those opportunities if I can make them happen yeah dude like if that happens I for sure gotta visit you if it's in Korea yes. or somewhere I don't know where you end up but like yeah I was actually 100%. talking about this uh, with another friend the other day, but just the, like the very fact that we got to study abroad and like work these experiences is like, like, I don't think there will ever be a time like it again, you know, like in that environment, like when you're that young, you know, like you are more open to explore things. You're not like limited by work. It's like, it's just a different, a different time. And it's like, uh, yeah, it's yeah, very grateful to have those on, on the, on the life experiences. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, especially where we're both at with, uh, I guess like career or life trajectory is I feel like this, this next four to five years in terms of financial freedom and like relational flexibility, like, you know, 10 years from now, I can very well be in a, a situation where it's like, I've got a kid or I've got, you know, a relationship that 
I need to be more mindful of. And it's not like I can just take my things up and, you know, work abroad. There are like yeah. very real consequences to a decision like that. So sure. I feel like yeah. now is the time to to give it a try if I, uh, if I can. So exactly. The time yeah. is now. <laughs> exactly. Well, I appreciate you, uh, entertaining this, the conversation It's fun just to catch up and, uh, and also appreciate you kind of hosting me at your place, uh, last month. Um, Dude, anytime, been... bro. Anytime. And next time you visit, I'll have like an actual like studio. We can like record a pod or something, you know, yeah. follow up. Yeah. That'd be awesome. And, uh, and the, the part of the goal with the pod is to hopefully inspire you to maybe, maybe do your own thing. So yeah, once yeah, you get, works, once you get your studio set up, that's, uh, yeah, yeah. that's something that I'll be looking out for as well. Hell yeah, definitely. All right, man. Thanks, Christian. We'll talk soon. Yeah. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Idea Exchange Podcast. For more information on the podcast and more information about myself, you can visit tylercho.com. I also send out a monthly newsletter to friends, family, and colleagues where I essentially share the best ideas that I came across from that month, whether it was books that I've been reading, podcasts that I've been listening to, or just conversations that I've been having. So feel free to subscribe on the homepage of my personal website. Until next time.